Up World. It's your past first point guard and Blazer beat writer Mike Richmond. You're listening to another episode of Locked on Blazers, part of the Locked on Podcast Network, available wherever you get podcasts. Today's episode, we are joined by Ben Golliver of the Washington Post and formerly of BlazersEdge.com, where many of you maybe remember him from. Ben, how you doing? I'm doing very well. Past first point guards are a dying breed. I love that label. And is this the first time we've ever podcasted together? That seems impossible, but I feel like it might be. I think it's true. I think it's true. I, I've I've realized that my NBA comps are a combination of DJ Augustine and Howell Neto. Those are my two best NBA comps. Yeah, I think I'm Jalen Rose, but right now Jalen Rose. So, you know, 25 <laughs> years removed from his prime. I think that's who I am. Tall, lefty, do a little bit of everything. Probably got some bum wheels at this point. Exactly. But, uh, Not a great mobility. Exactly. <laughs> maybe a little tighter shorts on my end. We'll see. Yeah. Well, you're wearing the black socks, I hope, in his honor. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Those were the good old days for uh, the maize and blue before the feds cracked down. Yeah. Listen, only true blue bloods can escape the feds like the University of North Carolina, baby. You can't stop <laughs> us. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, no, I went to the University of Carolina Basketball Museum during All-Star Weekend a couple of years ago when it was in Charlotte. Mm-hmm. That is a wild trip for somebody who had never been there before. I mean, just seeing all the nets from all the different years and all the MJ propaganda. I know, the MJ letter from him. Duke, like, hey, I'm not going to Duke. Take that, Coach K. I know, just an all-timer. Uh, so much good stuff in there. And then I got the tour of the Dean Dome as well, which was pretty spectacular. And crazy to think about now because I'm sure it's sitting empty for month after month during the coronavirus. Yeah. But that uh, that building took my breath away. So I, I'm definitely not going to claim that I'm a Carolina fan because I believe they matched up uh, in the early 90s in one of the finals, right, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, and that, that didn't go Michigan's way. So <laughs> I, I'm going to have to give that one to you. But uh, certainly all the respect in the world over here for UNC. Yeah, so that's uh... – the Dean Dome seats more than the Rose Garden or the Moda Center. It has more more seats for the college arena than for, you know, one of the biggest, bigger NBA arenas in the in the country. It feels like it's 20 stories tall. I mean, when you're standing there on the court, you're just looking up and up and up and up at the seats. But the game, actually, I saw Carolina beat Duke in the game that Zion blew his sneaker out. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and my claim to fame, Mike, is that I had a better seat that night than Barack Obama. Because they had me seating right on center court on the that media row that's like right on the bench with yeah. all the Cameron crazies jumping on my back. Yeah, like on top of you, yeah. I had the single best seat in the house. And take that 44. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, if you want to have a legacy conversation, I think that that deserves to be near the top of my list. You killing Osama bin Laden probably outranks me, but who knows? It's all debatable. I feel like we'll we'll get there at the end of both of, uh, end of your career. We'll look back and decide whether, <laughs> where that fits. Ben, you've been in in Disney lockdown inside the Disney bubble for 85 days, roughly. You probably have a count. That sounds like a great count. I tried not to count. Okay, okay. Point, then let's not, bring, let's not bring yeah. it up then. <laughs> I'm not trying to count either way. I don't want, because I got a little ahead of myself after game two of the finals. I was like, oh man, there could only be four days left. So I bought a plant to get home after game four, expecting the sweep. And then Jimmy Butler goes crazy in game three. So yeah, we're, uh, we're trying to avoid the countdown and we're definitely trying to avoid the count up. Yeah, I believe that. I, I like what's, let's put it like this. There's no more than four games left in the NBA season. That's factually true. And, uh, I'm ready for it to end. I'll say that <laughs> I'm, I'm not as weary as some of my media counterparts. Thankfully, I don't have any children. I think the, the media members here with kids are having the hardest time. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners 
know Chris Haynes. I mean, he's got four daughters and he's just, you know, dying out here waiting to be able to get home to them and, and to see his wife. So I think from that standpoint, it has been harder on people with families. LeBron's made a big point of that with his mm-hmm. three kids as well. But, um, you know, the end is in sight. I guess that's the best way to put it. Yeah. Does it, does it still feel like you're part of a, like a medical experiment for lack of a better term? Absolutely. And here's why the NBA leaders, Adam Silver, Mark Tatum, uh, David Weiss, who's kind of in charge of the, the medical side of things for this, uh, this bubble have made it a clear priority to finish strong. They want the legacy of this project to be zero positive tests in the bubble. And so for the last week, they've been just hammering us with emails and text messages and rule changes and all this stuff, trying to ensure that they get through to the finish line with no positive tests. And I, I totally understand it, you know, given everything that's at stake when you're televising a finals and you, you can't really delay it. And, and also just the league's reputation as a whole. I mean, it's been absolutely spotless compared to the NFL or Major League Baseball. And I think they want that to be this project's legacy. But they realized there was a lot of good basketball played here. They also realized that a lot of players got injured. It was very grueling. It was taxing. A lot of teams blew up. Some coaches got fired. I mean, it was it was a mixed bag. There, there's kind of no way around that. Uh, but what they want everybody to be able to say at the end of the day is, look, they made it more than three months with no players getting sick, no players dying, no coaches getting sick or dying, no media members getting sick or dying, and they were able to crown a champion and save their season. That's what they want this story to end with. And so, you know, from that standpoint, it's as rigorous now almost as it was when we first got here. The biggest difference is there's a lot fewer people because there was 22 right. teams back then. Uh, there was more than 1,000 people total. And, and right now the bubble kind of feels like a uh, – a ghost town, to be honest. I'm getting all these emails about, hey, make sure that you're staying socially distant from uh, from everybody else. I'm like, who's everybody else? I'm looking around like, I don't really hardly see anyone anywhere. What are you talking about? <laughs> so that's the that's the biggest difference right now in October, you know, compared to July. Sure. That just that time frame. Wow. Reminding of how long you've been there. Um, take us inside a game. When Jimmy Butler yells, you're in trouble. How loud is that from your press row seat? Well, the loudest thing we've heard during the finals was Eric Spolster screaming at Duncan Robinson to shoot and using all sorts of language that I would not want people to hear if my coach was reaming me out like that. <laughs> I mean, it was it was like a high school coach going after a freshman is, is how I would compare it. I mean, you've probably come across that at some point in your writing career. And for that to happen during the finals when Duncan Robinson's obviously just terrified of of his matchup with LeBron and everything else. I mean, it was a. Uh, that was really something. No, you you can hear a lot, um, especially depending on where you sit. Mm-hmm. Now, because I'm writing on newspaper deadline, I do tend to sit back a little bit further, so I have a wider viewpoint, and so maybe I hear a little bit less. But I could definitely see and hear parts of of Jimmy and LeBron um, going back and forth in the first quarter, and then you know down the stretch in the fourth quarter they kind of go back at it. What's important for people to realize this is a little brother moment for Jimmy Butler. Because he spent the 2013 playoffs chasing LeBron around as a member of the Chicago Bulls when LeBron was on the Heat. Right. He played all 48 minutes three times in that series. His whole job was to be the LeBron stopper. They lose that series. LeBron's finals MVP goes on to win the title. In 2015, Jimmy and the Bulls are up 2-1 in Chicago. I was at this game. LeBron scratches David Blatt's play call and buries a buzzer beater right in Jimmy Butler's face. Yeah, in the corner. I remember that in the corner. So they win game four, they win the series in six. Uh, and Jimmy Butler only goes back to the playoffs once in, or only wins a series, I should say once in the next four years. 
So he's been waiting a long time for something resembling revenge. Entering game three, LeBron had won five consecutive games against Jimmy Butler in the playoffs, and he had a 10-3 and playoff record against Jimmy Butler head-to-head. So for Butler, this was like, finally, I get some measure of revenge against this guy who's kind of haunted my entire career. And so I think that's why you're seeing the chirping on the court. Sure. I think that's why you're seeing the chirping in the postgame, too. Uh, Obviously, I know you're not rooting for it because you want to get back to what is your life outside of Disney World. But do you think this there's a chance after game three that we see more games or is this just going to end in five with this memorable historic Jimmy Knight? I think the most likely outcome is Lakers in five here. Um, I say that because I've never seen LeBron and Anthony Davis play that poorly at the same time. And I've never seen Anthony Davis play that poorly ever. Yeah, lost himself a finals MVP. Probably can't win the finals MVP after that, after game three. Absolutely. Totally. And, um, you know, it's funny, you're mentioning like, what's the environment like in the stands? I mean, everybody's just like sitting there in stunned silence as LeBron's throwing the ball all around this empty gym, you know, and it almost makes you wonder, like, had that been in a road arena? Like, let's say he has like three turnovers in the first quarter and the Heat fans start to get on. Right. Mm -hmm. Does he refocus and like, oh, I'm going to show you guys, you know, and he cleans his act up and like it plays out differently. I do think sometimes these games are impacted by the lack of crowds where like if you come out flat, it stays flat. That was certainly the case in game two. I mean, that's the flattest finals game I will ever see in my life, period. I mean, there was just no no juice in the building whatsoever. Right. And so I think that that's uh, that's part of it. When guys are struggling, it's actually very intimate, to be honest, because like there's nowhere for them to hide. They're very vulnerable there's like loved ones in the stands and nobody else. And there's like, you know, a, a few medias. So they know the media is going to write about it. It's kind of like you have nowhere to hide when you're struggling here in the bubble. And, you know, a guy like Danny Green very early on mentioned about how hard it was mentally. Like if you weren't shooting the ball well to like. Just well, Danny knows about the, that. Right, right. To get through like the on court and the off court grind of that where you just go back to your hotel room, read social media, get into the gym. There's nobody to cheer you on. I mean, it's tough. So I think that uh, those dynamics were at play in game three, but ultimately I think Lakers in five is the safest bet. Yeah, I mean, the chances that Anthony Davis disappears completely for another game seems unlikely. He's he's had some weird times in Orlando where he has had, you know, full games where he's just like, isn't he one of the best players in the world? What Where has he been at? Um, but I he hasn't had consecutive ones of that, that low. So I, I think he's very likely to bounce back and... Um, he's he's been a problem when he's been really good oh for sure i mean look it's so funny i was pre-writing my newsletter last night and the whole premise was that anthony davis was having easily the best postseason run of any lebron teammate and you'll remember that debate was it like oh wade or davis or irving like who's the best sidekick and you go back through the numbers and like coming into game three ad had one of the top five player efficiency ratings in the playoffs uh if you played at least 15 games of all time. And like the guys who are up there, it's LeBron and Jordan and Anthony Davis. Right. So you're like, (laughs) Holy cow. Like this is, we are really witnessing something pretty insane. Same deal for his win shares. They're completely off the charts. His true shooting percentage has been off the charts before game three. And so it was a very strange stinker. I'm not sure. They just didn't seem like they were focused. Honestly, they looked like they had just watched football all day and rolled out of bed to play that game. And um, I'm sure that, kind of the humiliation of that game a little bit is going to, you know, bring them some refocus for game four. And of course they're still motivated to get out of here. You know, they don't want to have to stay any longer than they have to. So I, I think from that standpoint, I expect the Lakers to write the ship. I also think they're three and O after losses so far uh, during this postseason run. 
And uh, of course, they've got the two best players in the court too. Yeah, and Vogel has been good at getting them tactically and motivationally after losses. They've been awesome. Let's come back in the second segment and talk a little bit about the Portland Trailblazers. But before we do that, I want to tell my listeners about Built Bar. You know Built Bar? It's the best tasting protein bar ever. Comes in 18 amazing flavors. All of them are covered in 100% chocolate. They're soft and easy to chew. It's the protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. If you tried other protein bars, you can know they can be a little bit dry, a little bit chalky. That's not Built Bar. Built Bar is a protein bar that tastes great. And if it being delicious isn't enough to sell you, well, how about it being good for you too? A wonderful option for the health conscious among us because it's low calorie, low sugar, while being high in protein and high in fiber. Take, for instance, the Cherry Barcia, one of their six new flavors they've got out. Cherry Barcia's got 17 grams of protein, 130 calories, 4 grams of sugar, and just 4 grams of net carbs. Doesn't that sound pretty good? Well, Get your hands on some of these delicious bars. Go to BuiltBar.com and use the promo code LOCKEDON, that's L-O-C-K-E-D-O-N, and you'll get $10 off your next order. That's the promo code LOCKEDON for $10 off at BuiltBar.com. All right. We're still chatting here with Ben Golliver of the Washington Post. We talked a lot about the NBA Finals and his experience in the bubble, but Let's let's uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about a team that lost to the Lakers two months ago, the Portland, <laughs> the Portland Trail Blazers. Uh, ostensibly, this is Locked On Blazers, a Blazers podcast, so we'll get to it at least a little bit. When I think the sentiment from Blazers fans was when the Lakers rolled through Denver four one, and it was just like getting into the, the into the uh, finals just steamrolling all of the Western Conference was like, hey, maybe we're not that far away. Maybe everyone in the West is this tier below what this Laker team is. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Um, or are, or was just the outcomes of the series happen to mirror each other when maybe the talent level doesn't? Well, yeah, I don't think there was that much separating Denver, Utah, Houston, Portland, any of those teams. I mean, to me, during the regular season, it was a two-team conference, Lakers-Clippers, right. right? And I think a lot of weird stuff intervened in the bubble and everything else. But once Portland got Nurkic back, you know, I think that they match up pretty darn well with those other teams. And I think you can also just point back to recent history and say, well, you saw Denver in the playoffs the previous year, and that went pretty well for Portland, right? Exactly. So I, I don't I don't think there's this, like, massive tiered hierarchy going on um, in the Western Conference. And I also think that, you know, you head into next year with lots of questions. You know, what's up with the Clippers' new coach? Uh, is Golden State back in the mix? Is Houston, like, done? Like, have they gone into a, just a different chapter of their franchise just because of the Westbrook experience and everything else? So there's going to be an awful lot of, uh, you know, tumultuous changes, I think, heading into next season. And I think for Portland, your advantage is going to be the continuity factor. I don't expect major roster changes to their group, um, you know, heading into next season. And so... You know, if you're looking and saying, I mean, I'm sure their pitch is going to be, we're getting Collins back, we're getting Nurkic back. Therefore, you know, that's almost like two free agent signings, right? Yeah, Rodney Hood. So we have like an NBA wing at least to play some minutes there. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And, you know, it's like that can be frustrating for fans, you know, not having some like real big new incoming piece. But at the same time, like welcoming guys back in who already know the system, already know how to play with the stars and can kind of hit the ground running. I think, um, that's a real boost. Now, does that take you all the way up to the three seed? No, I, I probably not. 
but does it make you more competitive than you look during this bubble run? Um, yeah, I would say so. And look, the two numbers that I always look at when it comes to Portland, I think, you know, kind of heading into next season would be Lillard's salary, because I think that really crimps what you can do from a, a roster building standpoint. And it should kind of lower expectations in terms of like what you can find around the margins. Of course, you want to give the front office credit for the Carmelo Anthony move. I mean, some of the other ones, you know, his Zonia and all that, you know, I'm not sure exactly if those paid off, but Carmelo really was a, you know, bang for a buck. I mean, that, that worked out really well. So you're trying to, you know, recapture that, uh, that same type of gold, right? You're trying to strike gold twice uh, with something like that. So his salary is going to define your offseason. And then I think the other number I look at is just Lillard's minutes played. You know, if I'm not mistaken, right. he led the league in minutes played last year. Um, you know, he's getting around 30, I believe. Yeah, he celebrated his 30th birthday in the bubble. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, you're, you're correct. I wasn't invited somehow, Mike. I don't know what happened there. Oh, he must have um, just slipped it. Wrong. Old email. Old email. <laughs> yeah. Well, also the security guards out front of the team hotel are, are going to say, all right, uh, you got the, the wrong credential for this event. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no, I think you know it's not like you're going to load manage him down to like 26 minutes at night or something. But you do have to think like you've got this guy under contract for a while. You want to extend his career as long as possible. Um, you know, you're going to have a little bit more reinforcements coming back this year. You, you expect what's the right number for him to play. And I think it was 37.9 this year. That doesn't seem like the right number, right. you know, like maybe 34, if you could get to that, you'd feel better about it, maybe 35. Um, and I know some people might think, Oh, you're just kind of like nitpicking, but you know, ultimately when you're managing a smaller point guards career, and you want to have this guy playing at a high level for another five years, and you know he's going to put in all the work it takes to get there, you want to make sure you're you're setting him up to uh, not run himself into the ground. Yeah, I mean, he is not maybe capable of dialing back his his workload and his intensity, so the way to do that is to get him off the floor, which I think is why there are people smarter than me who have advocated for the Blazers trying to sign a, a backup veteran point guard. Do you see that as, as the move um, or, or is there a, a scenario where the Blazers can make this happen with some sort of combination of CJ McCollum and Amphrey Simons morphing into an NBA player? Well, the Simons one would be the one you would love to hit, right? right. There was so much hype coming in for him last season. Can you explain that hype for me, by the way? Yeah, um, I can. Neil Olshay. Uh, he's a huge fan of Neil Olshay and he, he just decided that he was going to, instead of being quiet about this stuff, that he was going to sound the trumpets early that Anthony Simons was the, was the next big star. He called him the most talented player he'd ever drafted. And I also think looking back is it was a way of telling Terry Stotts, don't even consider don't even consider benching my man. You're going to play him 20 minutes a night. You're going to you're going to play him 20 minutes a night and it's and it'll be obvious that it is a it is a organizational plan to play this guy 20 minutes a night. That's a great explanation that I had not pieced together and it also explains why I was pretty disappointed with him all season long. Uh, I don't know if he lived up to those expectations at all, did he? I mean, I think uh, in terms of RPM, he was the worst shooting guard in the NBA. Not great, Bob. No. Um, yeah. So that, that matches my eye test. I, I didn't realize it was that bad. Um, so I have not really dug into free agency stuff cause it's a little bit, uh, a little bit early kind of on our calendar here. Oh, absolutely. Who are the best targets for uh, backup point guards? Like do you have names in mind? It would be like something like 
uh, DJ Augustine. It would be it would be a low level backup point guard. Um, I don't have necessarily names in mind, but just I'm, I'm more talking about it just um, as a in, in as a theory, holistic yeah. approach. Like, do do are you in favor of let the, let's yes. get another veteran guard on on the roster? For sure, because look, I mean, if Simons does hit, I don't think he's going to hit as a point guard, right? right? Um, and so I think from that standpoint, you know, CJ can run the offense, but it's not always perfect when he does that. I, yeah, I would, I would try to get another ball handler if I could, um, especially just kind of like a, a game manager. I mean, I think Earl Watson had that role at one point. Yeah. They've you know? tried it uh, a couple different times with, uh, with various veterans. Yeah. Well, Mo can Williams. they bring Steve Blake out of retirement? For yeah. The well, tour? listen, <laughs> they would love to bring Steve back for his fourth, fourth trip in the old, uh, black and red. Speaking of pass first point guard, Steve Blake. Um, yeah, no, I, I would love, I think that's, I'm not saying it's a gigantic hole because ultimately like Lillard can cover a lot of holes, you know, right. and like you can get by with just him and CJ if you need to. Um, but I do think like big picture, uh, a guy who could play 12 minutes would be helpful or yeah, 14 I th- minutes. You know? Yeah. I, I think that's, that's mostly the reasoning is just like a- anyone to sort of lower the load and let CJ stay in scorer mode because he's, pr- he's proven in, seven NBA seasons that he doesn't he just isn't an NBA point guard he is he is a scorer he is a scorer and that's about it even though he has moments when he doesn't look like that yeah no I I agree I think the the books are kind of out on these guys you know because they've played together for so long because they've had consistent roles because they've had the same coach um you know I I, yeah if you're trying to come back in and expect one of these guys to totally change his stripes I think that would be uh, false expectations sure all right let's come back in the third segment talk a little bit about Carmelo Anthony and the book you've got cooking, Ben. But before I do that, I want to tell my listeners about Roman. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually you just brush it off or blame yourself saying things like I lost my mojo or avoid it altogether with excuses like I had a long day at work or I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about it with a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication. It's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan, and if medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple, too. Just go to roman.com slash LockedOnNBA and complete your online visit. ED used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete that online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. And you can go to GetRoman.com slash LockedOnNBA today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. That's GetRoman.com slash LockedOnNBA. GetRoman.com slash LockedOnNBA. Still a pass for his point guard. Still Mike Richmond. Still listening to Lockdown Blazers. We're still chatting with Ben Golliver of the Washington Post. I'll get you out of here on, on this thought. With with the Blazers have probably 13 contracts locked in. If you assume Mario Hazonia is not going to go back to Europe, he's probably going to pick up his minimum option and come back. The the name, the sort of the only question on the list is Carmelo Anthony. Is there any reason that if he wants to come back, the Blazers shouldn't welcome him back? 
No, if I'm the Blazers, I'm. I don't, aren't you dying to have him back there? Yeah. I would have assumed. I mean, like, I don't follow the the Portland response uh, as closely as I did, obviously, when I was tracking it like minute by minute for Blazers Edge. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. I mean, he had some incredibly important moments in the playoffs, or even just to get them into the playoff position. Right. You know, some of those um, the, the the seeding games and then the the play in game against Memphis. He's hitting some really big shots. And again, look, everyone wants to say like, oh. You know, people need to fill out the online apology form for Carmelo Anthony. Everybody wrote him off. And then everybody else wants to come back and say, like, did they really? I'm here to tell you, I 1000 percent wrote Carmelo Anthony off. (laughs) He was atrocious in Oklahoma City. He was even worse in Houston. The guy was done, period. That analysis was correct. Okay, now he completely transformed his body, got himself into a much more functional um, organ, you know, role within an organization and also swallowed his pride. That yep. was the biggest yes. part about it. And I, I'm sure your your audience already knows this whole story about you know his transformation. But just from an outside perspective, he was a completely different dude. You know, watching him here in the bubble than he had been the previous stops. And we should not revise that history and be like, oh, he really wasn't that bad. No, he was horrible. He pretty much lost Oklahoma City a, a playoff series. And in Houston, I mean, they he was so bad they just sent him home. Yeah, they because said, we're going like, to play Gary Clark over you, dog. Like, you can either watch yeah. Gary Clark play your minutes or you can leave. And he said, oh, let's, I'll leave then. Exactly. And so yeah, I just don't want that to get lost in the shuffle. But if you're Portland, you know, again, it's the same It's the same question. Like, how much money is it going to cost you to keep him? And then who could you get at a similar price that's going to be able to do what he's doing? And I think that's why, you know, that was pretty much the one stroke of genius last last year that I saw from Portland in terms of, you know, they're always trying to, they're in the action a lot. You know, they're taking a lot of swings, a lot of cuts. And there was a bunch of strikeouts here the last couple of years for Portland's front office, but that one was a definite hit. Yeah. And I, I also just think from sort of a cachet thing, like the, a, t- a small market team that complains that they can't sign free agents and also doesn't really sign free agents. If it, if the Hall of Famer guy wants to come back, I think you just bring him back just for, I, I don't know, just for the warm fuzzies of being like, look, um, people with shiny resumes sometimes choose our little town. For sure. And you keep Lillard happy, too. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think I, I'm not sure anybody was a bigger fan of Melo than than Dame. Yeah, was he? I mean, just absolutely. Based on their body language and like, you know, some of those times where Dame's, you know, drawing two defenders and the ball squirting around to Melo in the corner. Melo hits the big three, does his little celebration. It seemed like Dame was like the happiest guy, genuinely happiest guy on the court, because you know, ultimately he knows like he could score 40 and 50, but that doesn't necessarily get you these playoff wins. He, he wants better offensive scoring balance, and, and Carmelo was there to deliver it. Yeah, you swing the ball to Al Aminu enough times, you really start to appreciate <laughs> Carmelo Anthony. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Do uh, Blazers fans miss uh I think they Al do Farouk now Aminu? because the defense was so bad that they're like, oh, being a competent NBA defender has, has mild value. Like, you know, a, a year of being the bottom three defense was like a reminder of just like, Oh, some sort of baseline of being okay and competitive on defense and being able to rebound is is better than the alternative. It sounds to me like you guys should be petitioning the league for hockey substitutions where Melo gets to play offense and Minu gets to play defense exactly. and they can just, sub in for each other at, at midcourt. <laughs> yes. There you go. Now you can be a title team if you can do that. Okay? Exactly. You just jump over the boards at midcourt <laughs> and, and and make it happen. Ben, the other you are while working on a newspaper deadline and writing for um, one of America's great publications. You're also writing a book. Is this right? I am. I haven't really started writing it yet. Obviously, I've been doing all the reporting and stuff for it kind of on a day-to-day basis. But 
my plan is once I leave the bubble to go basically lock myself in my apartment for the next three months of COVID and bang out a manuscript of my first book called Bubble Ball. Uh, it's going to come out uh, in May 2021. It is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble right now for pre-order. And it's going to try to tell the whole story of the bubble experience. It's going to be a little bit of first person mixed in with, obviously, my reporting and um, you know, telling the story of the the playoffs as well. And of course, for Blazers fans, you know, Lillard's going to have a you know pretty large role, you know, given some of his heroics there to get Portland, uh, you know, through the seeding games and and back into the playoffs. And so, you know, I think it's uh, it's going to be a really fun test. I've always wondered or kind of wanted to write a book, but never really felt like I had uh, the subject matter necessarily. Like the only time I'd gotten really serious about it was do you know do I try to go back and write like the Odin Durant draft, could that be a book? And then, you know, ultimately like that's of some interest, but I feel like this is a wider story that, that a lot of people, whether they're NBA fans or general sports fans or fans of science or people who are just, you know, into public health and all of it. I mean, I just, there's going to be a lot of layers to this, not to mention, you know, the racial protests, um, you know, Kobe Bryant's death. I mean, there's just a million different angles to the story of, of the bubble. And so I think from that standpoint, uh, you know, hopefully it'll be a fun read. Yeah, it sounds like a, a, at least a um, a unique angle because there's, you know, you're one of maybe 30 people who have been there since July in terms of media members. It's it's not a big group. Um, it's a lot of ESPNers, I guess. But um, there's not a lot of people who have seen all the things you've seen behind the scenes. It'll be, um, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I think it might actually even be a smaller group than that because a lot of the the independent media members, at least, um, a lot of them switched out halfway through. So, right, right, right. You know, Ky- Kyle Goon, uh, Chris Haynes, uh, Malika Andrews, like there's a few who have been here the whole way. Uh, Gary Washburn, Mark Spears, like there, there's a, a select group that's been here the whole way, but pretty much everyone else has you know left and come back or had to leave halfway through for various reasons. So, um, you know, I was one of the only reporters there for the Bucks protest when it first started. Um, you know, you, you, obviously I've been, I think I might have gone to more games total than any other reporter here. Cause I haven't missed a single game since the start of the second round of the playoffs. I've been to every single game. Wow. So these are just like rare, unique opportunities. We're never going to be able to do it again. I've, I've really tried to just dive head first in the entire experience. And hopefully if, you know, your listeners are really into basketball and, and followed the, you know, the Blazers bubble run and everything else, maybe they'll still be able to learn something, hopefully. Yeah, well, I've seen you crush, you know, whatever, four consecutive, six consecutive games at Summer League, um, and that's really low-quality basketball, so I'm not surprised that when you're watching high-quality basketball that you uh, you keep that same level <laughs> of commitment. Oh, yeah, no, it's it's and it's funny, because if you go all the way back to March, when the league first shut down, I was writing these really pathetic columns, Mike, where I was like, here's how the NBA can save their season. They've got to create a bubble and they've got to play five games back to back and the teams are going to play every other day. And I laid out like my dream scenario and I actually thought it was going to happen in Las Vegas. Um, And I was basing it on summer league. I was basing it on the idea of just having as many games for television as possible. And in hindsight, you know, my dreams were really turned into a reality that did not look that much different um, by Adam Silver and, and the rest of the NBA within a few short months. And, and the NBA Players Union as well deserves a lot of credit. So, you know, from that standpoint, like I was into the idea of a bubble months before the bubble actually came into fruition. And and I'm just really glad it has. Look, it's been a challenging experience. It's been very, you know, exhausting mentally, physically. Um, you know, it's a lot of basketball in a short amount of time. I'm right there with the players who say, like, let's not rush into next season. Let's try to take a little break here. And 
and catch our breath. You know, I, I completely agree with them there. But I also think, you know, sometimes the most challenging things are the most rewarding. And I think I'm going to look back on this experience, I would guess, you know, 20, 30 years from now is sort of like the most rewarding re uh, reporting experience that I've ever had. I hope so, because it's um, it's uh, inshallah, we, you will not have to do it again. So this will be a unique, <laughs> you know, one off thing. I well, caught the reference because I heard about the debate. Uh, well there you done. go. There you go. Uh, ben, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you know, it's it might be in in eight years or whatever, being in the same NBA circles, the first time we've ever podcasted again, but I hope it's not the last. I agree, man. Uh, and I wish you the absolute best of luck. And I hope everybody's staying safe in Oregon, uh, both for your, you, your family, uh, the listeners and everybody else. And um, I hope that we can uh, talk soon. All right, man. Appreciate it. That's going to do it for today's show. We got more fun stuff coming this week. Second half of my interview with Sean and Joey of Roundball Rock. First half is in your feeds right now. Don't miss either one of those. And also coming up, we're going to talk about Gary Trent Jr. Is he maybe in line for a big old payday? Keep checking your feeds for more on that. And while you're there, make sure you tell your friends about this podcast. They can find it wherever they already get podcasts. Just search Lockdown Blazers. We'll be there waiting for you. Appreciate you listening. Talk to you soon.